0: This is a new topic for the Bible in Isaiah chapter 40. The new topic is the gospel. It doesn't appear before this in the Bible. This is the passage. When we talk about the gospel, we're talking about Isaiah 40 and 52. Both of them introduce the gospel to the Bible. Really important topic. How about I um, pray for us as we look at it today um, at this immensely important part of God's word. Loving, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word and you've given us your gospel. We pray today that as we look at this announcement and what it meant and what it means for us, that we'd cling firmly to the Lord Jesus, and we'd be encouraged, uh, we'd learn to stand firm in our faith, and we'd learn to follow Him all the more. And we prayed in Jesus' name. Amen not quite 100% yet, if you turn back to Isaiah chapter 40, um, that's probably a good place to start. Um, this is a book of enormous spiritual benefit to us. Um, I think it's probably worth telling you, Like, I think from January to March we did like the first half of Isaiah, and chapter 40 is a big change. So I think it's probably worth um, getting us caught up as to what's happened up to chapter 40, and you've got to understand how to read Isaiah. So I want to do two things before we get into this passage. I'll tell you, the way Isaiah talks, because he talks weird because he's a prophet, and it's not straightforward, um, and, and, and where he fits in the Bible, and then I'll recap on Isaiah 1 to 39 real quick. Um, so, you've got your Old Testament, you, you've got your Bible, it's got a new and old Testament, right? So the first half of the Bible, it's more than half, is, is the Old Testament, and what we need to do, it goes up to Malachi, um, and you need to split it at ha- in half, it's in two halves, in the middle of one king's. So I've split it like that. Genesis to 1 Kings 10 is kind of the history of Israel, the rise of the nation of Israel who are going to testify about God to the world. And after that, there's more history, more things happen, but these important characters come into the forefront called prophets. They kind of take over, and they're the main characters, if you like, in the the story of the Bible from 1 Kings chapter 11. Now, does, does anyone know what happens 1 Kings chapter 10 to 11? You're going to remember it. Um, It's the rise of Israel right up to the end of 1 Kings chapter 10. They build the temple. Solomon is king and it's all awesome and they are set to bless the world as God promised they would. 1 Kings chapter 11 have some of the most depressing words in all the Bible because it just starts with something like and Solomon turned and worshipped false gods and from that point it's all going downhill and Israel is going to end up in judgment and decline and and, and that's where um, Israel ends up when we're in the book of Isaiah. But all the way through this time of decline, When God's people are turning away from him and no longer care what he says, there's these really important prophets who paint this picture of an absolutely glorious future that's in store for God's people. So they preach about a promised future, the last days, in those days, on that day, in this great future that God's going to give for us. Look around you. It is terrible what is going on in Israel. But God has good things in store for us. Hold fast to him. And so they teach about this incredible thing, it's incredible salvation that's going to come into the fu- in the future. Now, our reading plan is to take you through the book of Isaiah. Um, it's a little hard to understand what he's talking about. You, you, you read Isaiah 40, Isaiah 52, and you come up with weird images and stuff, and you wonder, what, what, what's Isaiah doing? Um, what he's doing is, is he's is painting pictures of God's future that he's going to bring for his people. What he's doing is he's grabbing the elements of Israel's past and saying, it's going to be like that, except the new version, except the better version. So you have to think for this bit, but so this is basically the story of Israel through the, the, the um, history. There, God created the world. Israel went into slavery. God saved them. There was an Exodus, a saving out of slavery in Egypt. He made them His people. He made His covenant agreement with them, making them, "You're my people. I'm your God. Follow me." So follow my law. That's what it means. He led them to the promised land. He gave them a great king, David, to rule rule them and and his line was promised that they would rule forever and he established his throne and his temple in Jerusalem and that's kind of the main things that happened in the story of of Israel. Now what Isaiah does, what other prophets do, is he keeps talking in those terms, he keeps on saying, you know God created the world, you know what he's going to do in the future, there is going to be a new creation you can't even imagine. You think creation's great, wait till you see what he makes it new. You think the Exodus was extraordinary? God parted the waters and destroyed the Egyptian army? There is going to be an Exodus the size of the world with people from all nations who are going to stream to God's eternal dwelling place. You think the old old covenant was really good? Wait till you see the new covenant. Wait till you see the promised land that is heaven on earth that encompasses all of creation. Wait till you see the, the king, the son of David, who rules with perfect justice, who rules with perfect righteousness. You can be part of his kingdom. This, this, see, see how Isaiah's talking? And that's, that's kind of the pattern of what he's doing the whole way through. And so you're wondering, where's he getting this image from? Well, he's getting it from Israel's past. It's all going to happen new. And much better. The other thing that's kind of complicated that I'll just tell you real quick is there's kind of two levels of fulfillment of God's promises to, uh, that Isaiah says. There's, what they're looking for is salvation from slavery in Babylon. That's literally going to happen. They're going to be saved. Ezra and Nehemiah, you can read about it in those books and it'll be led back to the promised land. But the ultimate version of that only comes when Jesus comes and saves his people forever. So w- when you read it, you're looking for two levels of fulfillment. They're going to be led back to the promised land now in what, 500 and I don't know, in the 6th century BC sometime, and, <laughs> and they're looking ultimately for the end of time where God will save his people forever. Now, come back to Isaiah chapter 2, and we'll kind of recap where we got to, and you'll see uh, it's picture language, so you might as well just draw it, right? Um, I'm going to put my outline in Isaiah 40 so I don't have to find it again. Isaiah chapter 2, just turn back there, and let's recap how we got here in Isaiah, and you'll kind of see some of the things I've been um, talking about come about. Isaiah chapter 2 is on page 681 of my Bible. Now God's purpose for Israel, what he called them to be, was that he would live among them as their God, they'd be his people, and as his people following his righteous ways, they would introduce him to the world. They didn't do a terribly good job of that. Have a a look at chapter 2, verse 2, and it gives this vision of the future when it's a vision of Israel doing its job properly. It says, in the last days, so in this great future God's got planned, the mountain of the Lord's temple, we're talking about the temple, will be established as the highest of the mountains. It'll be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream into it. You You get the picture? God's temple will be exalted above the whole earth. And people of all nations will come to him. Next verse. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the law of the Lord from Jerusalem. He'll judge between nations. He'll settle disputes for many peoples. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore get the picture there's the temple exalted above the earth and people of all nations will stream into it that's what Isaiah 2 kind of foresees that's going to be the vision of what happens in the future now you get to chapter 5 of uh, you turn to chapter 5 of Isaiah and the picture the emphasis changes we're no longer thinking about God at the middle of the world and people flocking to him now we're focusing on Israel and Israel's job in that plan people are going to flock to know God that's God's plan. Now we focus on Israel. So you come to Isaiah chapter 5 and the vision kind of changes to a fruitful vineyard. Um, that's not a vineyard, that's a tree. But the, it, it, the, the illustration changes from a vineyard to a tree halfway through. So I just made it a fruitful tree and that'll do. Um, um, the fruit that God is looking for from his people, that people will flock to see and to learn the ways of God, is that they would live in harmony together, his way of righteousness and justice. They would live out that righteousness and justice together. That's the fruit God's looking for from Israel. How's that turn out? Well, chapter, turn to chapter 5, verse 7, and in a verse it'll tell you how that turned out. Verse 7, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. There was nothing in Israel that followed God's way of justice and righteousness. They utterly failed in their job. And so what we find out, God looked for righteousness and justice. He found a fruitless vineyard, a fruitless tree. And this is where the tree takes over. is now a tree, basically, in the picture. Um, the tree is fruitless. Uh, he's found Israel completely lacking, and he finds that Israel gradually become completely deaf to God's word. It's like he talks, he talks, he talks, and Israel doesn't hear what he says. So in chapter 6, he commissions this prophet called Isaiah for his ministry, who has a terrifying vision where he enters God's holy presence, and God says, Go and preach to this nation, but I guarantee you they will not listen to you. In fact, I'm going to make it so that they don't listen to you because they've rejected me for so very long. That's what chapter 6 is about. And so Judah will be conquered, Assyria will come down and chop down the tree of Israel. And it will be left as a stump in the land. Israel will just be like a stump in the land. It's like there's a tiny bit of the tree left, but the tree's gone. It's just Israel's going to be exiled. They're no longer going to be God's people in his land. And so we're left with Israel in the land, just in ruins, and no nation's going to flock to that. So God's plan looks like a disaster. Isaiah chapter 11 is one of my favorite chapters, and I'm not going to read it. You should read it later. Because it talks about out of that stump, something glorious is going to grow. And it'll happen in the last days, and all nations will flock to it. Out of the stump of Jesse will grow a great king whose rule is beyond imagining and who people of all nations will follow forever. That's the vision of chapter 11. But Israel doesn't know that yet, and you keep reading Isaiah until you get to chapter 37. And by the time you get to chapter 37, which is where I'm turning now, you read about the king of Assyria, and he's arrived at Jerusalem finally. It's an invincible army. It's an army that conquered the known world to them. It, they're the superpower, Assyria. Hezekiah is the king of Jerusalem at the time, um, one of the very few faithful kings they ever had, have, um, and he trusts in God throughout the siege, and God miraculously destroys the Assyrian army and saves them. They're saved from Assyria, and Assyria kind of declines and goes away, and the next superpower would be Babylon. Um, at the time, nobody knew that. Uh, Babylon and Judah were actually mates at the time, Um, And so you come to chapter 39. This is the chapter just before um, chapter 40, which we're looking at today. Chapter 39. And there's kind of this event that happens where their their friend Babylon comes along and and, and they hang out. And it has kind of prophetic uh, importance for the future of Israel. So have a look at chapter 39. I'm just going to read the chapter because it's real short and you get the idea. Because this is where we left our series last time we, we, we looked at it. Chapter 39 says, uh, At that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah, that's the king in Jerusalem, um, letters and a gift because he'd heard of his illness and recovery. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say, and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet replied, What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There's nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day, will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they'll become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there'll be peace and security in my lifetime. Kind of an interesting resignation to (laughs) how it's going to turn out. And that's how it ends. Isaiah says Babylon's going to come and cart everything away, cart your people away. And you get to chapter 40 and it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Here's what I want you to know. Between chapter 39 verse 8 and chapter 40 verse 1, there's a period of more than 100 years. You wouldn't pick that up straight off. You get to chapter 40 and it's addressed to Israelites who are living as slaves in Babylon sometime after 586 BC. The, the bit before that's about 700 BC. It's over 100 years beforehand. King Hezekiah is dead, Isaiah the prophet is now dead, but these are Isaiah's words. See, what happened is, Isaiah prophesied to Israel and said, you have sinned against God so much that he is going to judge you, he's going to send you into exile in Babylon. But he prophesied that exile, and he also wrote down prophecies for those people that would be in exile. Very, very important words. The rest of the book, the prophecies, he wrote down for the people in exile. It must have been really cool to open, like, the Bible scroll as people in exile and go, you know that great prophet Isaiah? He wrote stuff for us. (laughs) That's what chapter 40 to the end of the book is about. It's written to the people suffering under slavery in Babylon, and the thing it says to them is the gospel. Have a look at chapter 40, 1 to 2. We'll go through chapter 40 now, so have that, that bit open. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service, this is in slavery, has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So it's clear the reason they're there is because of their sin. Isn't it amazing, though, it says, tell Israel that their sin has now been paid for. We don't know how it's been paid for yet. Stuart will tell you about that next week, because that comes up in Isaiah 52 and 53. But the tone's changed. It's warm. It's gone from God talking to disobedient people to a loving father comforting a distraught child. That's, that, that's what it is. That's, that's God addressing his people. It's sheer grace, mercy, gentleness, kindness. He offers comfort to his people. What sort of comfort? What's this comfort God offers? Well, I reckon there's two types of comfort. Mostly, I can only do the first type. The first type of comfort is just like sympathy. It's being alongside somebody, kind of emotional support. Yeah, like uh, my my kid hurts himself. I can't really fix it, but I can put my arm around him until he feels better. It's it's just emotional support. The second type of comfort does that, but it does more than that. It fixes the problem entirely. Most of the time, I can't do that. You know, a kid pops balloon and cries. I can fix that. I can (laughs) blow up a new balloon. But most things, I can only do the first type of comfort. But God's into the second type as well. Comfort my people means it is time to fix all the problems that my people are suffering. Take away the problem of suffering entirely. Why is God talking to Israel so different now? Really important to think about that. Up till now, he's been having a go with them. He's telling them that there's judgment to come because they're sinning, and now he's comforting them. Here's the difference, and it's really important. Up until now, Israel has been self-sufficient in control of their own lives, too, proud, too, too prideful to listen to God's word, completely uninterested, deaf to God's word. They have not been open to God because they don't think they needed God. Now they're in slavery and every reason for their prideful self-sufficiency has been stripped away. They are now fully aware that they have no solutions to their problem. They now know how much they need their God to save them. You know the reason more people don 't become Christians the reason people don't become more, more people don 't become Christians because they don 't think they need a savior it 's that simple because they think they can do it themselves because they're kind of life makes sense to them and i 'm self sufficient and I can do it myself to become a Christian. you need to know how desperately you need a savior. Listen to how Jesus described how, the kind of people who become Christians. This is what Jesus said, Jesus said, blessed the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. People are despairing, people who are beyond thinking they can do it themselves. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. We just talked about comfort. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In our world, the people who grab it for themselves are the people who inherit stuff and grab stuff and get stuff. In Jesus' kingdom, it's people who know their need and cry out for a saviour. The Apostle Paul talks about the same thing. He talks to this church in Corinth. And it's really funny. I could never say this to a church because it's really, like, direct and uh, rude. Um, But he says to the church in Corinth, "Um, brothers and sisters, think about what you were when you were called to be Christians. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. You know, modern translation. You guys were a bunch of losers when you became Christians. But God chose the foolish things of the world, people like you, to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God saves people who know they need him because they can't do it themselves. At church, we make a habit of confessing our sins together. The reason is because if you're a Christian, I hope you know, Day by day, week by week, moment by moment, you are in ongoing need of God's grace and mercy to you. That's who we are. We need what God has to offer. We can't do it ourselves. You need to see yourself that way because God's forgiveness, Jesus, is for people who need him and cry out for his help. Many of you will have family members and people you love who aren't Christians and you'd love them to become Christians, right? I reckon the reason they're not becoming Christians is because they're self sufficient and they don't think they need a Savior. I think we should pray that God would shake up their comfort, shake up their life so that they feel like they need a Savior. I feel like we should pray that God would make their lives worse. Does that sound like a weird prayer? Think about it. What is worse in life? Would you rather people have a wonderful middle class life where they're self sufficient and confident and think it's great and then die and go to hell? Or people whose life is considerably difficult who come to the end of themselves and say God I need you because I can't do this myself. That's what we should want for our friends. Not that everything should fall apart. We want them to come to the point though where God would humble them. As Jesus said what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Pray for God to humble your unconverted friends. It's the only way they'll turn to Jesus Anyway, God says it's time to bring comfort to his people. That's what we've seen in chapter 41 to 1 to 2 there. Um, and then there's like these disembodied voices. We don't, like, all these prophets, they're real vague. Get to verse 3, a voice of one calling. Verse 6, a voice says. Um, verse 9, there's another voice talking. And you don't know who's talking. And is it angels? Is it people? Who are they talking to? Where are they? When are they? It doesn't say. But God said, I'm coming to comfort my people. And we have three voices that respond with the appropriate response to, to that message. God is coming to comfort his people. And so you focus on what they say. What's the first voice say? Chapter 40, verse 3, a voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low and rough ground will become level. The rugged places are plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is coming to save his people Quick, build a really big motorway so we can get there real quick, is what it says. The idea of a highway, uh, they had highways then, they weren't real good. It was really just levelling stuff out so that the king could come quickly and have a direct path. There was no real roads back then, it, not like we have now. But this highway is ridiculous. It's like um, between um, Babylon and between Jerusalem, let's just flatten everything out and put a road there so we can travel. God's coming to save his people, let's have it happen quickly. You've got to think about what that looks like. Here's a rough map. Um, you see where Jerusalem is, you see where Babylon is. Um, if you were to go straight there like that, that's, that's 875 kilometres. You can only do that if you have a helicopter though, okay? Um, they didn't have a helicopter, believe it or not. And so the way they went was probably more like that. Um, you, you double the distance. They walked, I don't know, towards 1,500 kilometres. Um, it was a traumatic journey. People died on the way. It was a terrible thing to try and travel in that, in that world. God declares he's coming to rescue his people from slavery in Babylon. Coming back is not a small deal. So he says, build a highway, quick, quick, build a direct route so God can go to Babylon, get his people and bring them home. That's the picture. What's that? What road's that? It's the M7. Have you ever noticed what a remarkable, incredible thing the M7 is? It's amazing. It's pretty much flat the whole way for 41 kilometres. Um, it's fairly straight the whole way, except for that wonderful right turn right up the north end. You know what, you know what I'm talking about. It's quite a, quite a sharp turn as far as motorways go. That is an absolutely remarkable feat of engineering. It took them two years to do it, and they finished ahead of time. You know how you level out of um, 41 kilometres? You build 90 bridges. That's how many bridges there are on the M7, 90 bridges. You add the footpath bridges, there's 150 bridges that they built, something like that. You level stuff out. Like with our modern engineering equipment, it's an incredible feat to build the highway to get somewhere real quick. Um, what, what's the speed limit on the M7? 100, good, good. It says 100 on the thing, I hope you go 100. What, 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 does it, what speed does it feel like you should go on the M7? 200, yeah, yeah, I'm feeling some nervousness and you know guilt from the congregation at this point. I'm not gonna tell you to speed, okay, you hear me that? Um, however, the M7, it, it just feels like it's, it's, it's built to drive enthusiastically down. I'll say it like that. Um, I'm not going to speed. I'll drive down it enthusiastically. It's designed to get you from A to B with ease and with certainty of arrival. Yeah. God says, I'm coming to save his people. He's going to provide the way. He prepares a way so his pe- these people could never prepare for themselves. I couldn't make the M7. I'm preparing a way. I make a straight path to Babylon. I'm coming to save my people. He'll certainly arrive, and all the people need to do is be ready to receive him when he comes. That's it, that's all they have to do. Here's a really important principle to remember about Christianity. In Christianity, God always bridges the distance to save us, we never bridge the distance to get to him. God always bridges the distance to get to us. That is really important to remember. That's what Jesus is about. It's really important, like, kind of experientially. Like, you will talk to people. And it's not that they'll think God's kind of too distant, um, like, um, in distance, like, physical distance away from them. But often people think he's too spiritually far from them. Or that they're too morally far away from him. Or just their experience is too far from God. They can never have anything to do with God. They're unable to have anything to do with God because of how far they are from God. And to people like that, we've got two pieces of good news. One of them is, you're right. You are really far from God. That's what sin is. And we are unable to do anything about ourselves. But while we are unable to reach God, he is certainly able to reach us. There is nowhere in creation, there's no state in experience you can get to, which is too far for God to reach you with his gospel and his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy. Nowhere. Because God bridges the distance, not us. God prepares the way for people to be saved. He comes to save us. And that message is what's called the gospel. Have a look at chapter 40, verse 9. And this is the first instance of gospel in the Bible, this message that God is coming to save. You who bring the gospel, good news to Zion, good news gospel. You who bring the gospel to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring the gospel to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout, lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, what's the gospel? Here is your God. Here he is to save you. That's the gospel. When's that come about? Well, ultimately, it comes about when Jesus comes. If you just turn to Mark chapter 1, and you, you read Isaiah 40, and you really just have to read Mark, Mark chapter 1 because you understand. Uh, Isaiah is painting this picture of the future. Mark, I'm just trying to find. Mark chapter 1 is like page 1001. In my Bible, the fulfillment of this prophecy, the gospel, God's arrived, here is your God to save you, happens in Mark chapter 1. Listen how it starts the beginning of the good news, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of Isaiah 40 about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it's written on Isaiah the prophet, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. This should sound familiar a voice of one, calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. They have to be ready. God's coming. Be ready. Repent. Trust in God. The whole Judean countryside went out, and the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Um, John wore some weird clothes. Um, We'll leave it there for this point. Verse 1 says the beginning of the gospel. Why is that the beginning of the gospel? Because John the Baptist is the first person in history who can say to Israel, here is your God. Here is, he, he is to save you. I've prepared the way for him to come. Repent, be ready for him to come. And so Jesus pre- declares that gospel. Have a look at verse um, 14. You think Jesus arrives, God's son's arrives. That means the gospel's in their presence, right? Well, that's what Jesus said. Um, chapter 1, verse 14 says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. The time has arrived. The time's come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. God's made the way. He's arrived. Be ready to respond the right way. Just turn back to Isaiah chapter 40 there. So you get the basic picture. It's real simple, isn't it? God is making the way to arrive to save people. Now there's kind of a... There's a deeper level of what's going on in this passage as well that I want you to be aware of because um, the rest of Isaiah is is about what I'm about to tell you. Um, What's going on that's deeper in this passage is Isaiah 40 is the first step of God's new exodus to save his people. We're invited to be part of that exodus, that escape from sin and death, to travel to the new Jerusalem, his kingdom. Let me remind you what happens in Exodus. I'll tell you, there's this four stages of the Exodus. I'll tell you the basic pattern, and this is what the rest of Isaiah does, basically. Um, oh, good, we've got the map. Um, so you see Egypt there. Israel's in slavery in Egypt. There they are. Um, and Canaan, the Promised Land, where God dwells. Um, God meets Moses at the burning bush. Who goes to Egypt to save God's people? Question. Moses is just God's spokesperson, Do you know what God says to Moses? Exodus 30, verse 8, I have come down, I will go to save my people. Moses is just, you know, the the spokesperson, the guy out the front. God goes to save his people in Egypt. It's the first thing, God comes to save. That's just what we've heard in in, in Isaiah 40. That's the first step. Second thing, he he does miracles, he shows his glory and signs of wonders before the watching world in Egypt, and he saves his people out of the Red Sea. Oh, one, good. God provides the rescue. He actually provides the means of escape. Death on one side, slavery on one side. What's on the new side? New life. New life, God's way, being God's people. What happens then? They travel through the wilderness to God. God leads and provides on the way he prepared. He came to save them. Now he leads them back on the way he's prepared to the place of salvation. The last thing, eventually, other stuff happens. They arrive at Jerusalem where God rules to be his people forever. Now, those four stages is what the rest of Isaiah is about. Those four stages are what the rest of your life is about. If you know Jesus, then you know that he came to save us. If you know Jesus, you know he died for your sin so that you could escape slavery to sin and death and all its consequences. And now you are on a new road, a journey to the new creation. God will provide for you every step of the way. He'll lead you every step of the way. That's why we meet and read the Bible together. That's why we pray. That's why we trust in the power of God's spirit to provide for us spiritually every step of the way. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer because we're on that journey home. And finally, uh, Isaiah chapters 65, 66, New Jerusalem, we arrive. We're at the uh, new creation. That's our journey. That's the journey through the rest of uh, the, the book of Isaiah we're on the way. In the book of Acts, you'll come across this really, really weird name for Christianity. They call it the way, the followers of the way. That's what you are. You're a follower of the way because God has made the way and you're on the way following him to the promised land if you're a Christian. But it all starts with this wonderful news in chapter 40, I am coming to save my people. God has come. Now, Very quickly, the second voice, first voice, God's coming, prepare the highway, prepare the way, he's come. Verse uh, six, another voice, a voice said, cry out. And I said, what should I cry? All people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The faithfulness of people is very temporary. Our lives are very temporary. You know what's eternal? God's word, God's promises. Friends, I don't know what the place we are in now will be like in 100 years. I do not know if New Life Anglican Church will be here in 100 years. I don't know if the Anglican Church, the Anglican organisation will exist in 100 years. There'd be reason to think it's falling apart. But that's all right. Everything falls apart in this world. But I know what will be here in 100 years people will be meeting around the Bible. People will be coming to faith in Jesus through his word because the word of the Lord endures forever. The word of the Lord always outlives its enemies, always. It must have been very, very hard for Israel sitting in slavery around the glory of Babylon saying, oh yeah, Babylon's not eternal. And yet here we are reading the same promises they trusted in and none of us here know anything about Babylon. It was the glory of the world. It was the, it was the biggest empire anybody had ever seen. But it faded away like a flower in the field. And God's promises are alive and well today, and they will be until Jesus returns. Isn't that encouraging? Place your confidence in the right place in the Christian life. And so, chapter nine, uh, verse 9 to 11 finish with talking about this wonderful news about God's arrival. And because it's a news, it's a message, it's a gospel, you're supposed to tell people. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. Tell people. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. This is about Jesus. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young on the way to the new creation. Isn't that wonderful news? Let's hold fast to that eternal gospel on the way. Let me pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that the distance that we couldn't, cover ourselves, make a way for ourselves, that you have made a way, that you've bridged every kind of distance that exists between you and us, and that you've you've done that through Jesus, that he came to us, we didn't go to you, and that he died for our sins on the cross. Thank you so much that he's alive, he has authority over all things, and that by his power you lead us to the promised land. Please help us to keep trusting him, provide for us each day, until we get there.